Good evening, everybody. Hello. How are we doing? Are you enjoying the Prelude to Revival event? I am. I, uh, I really love this. I really love this. This is, I think this is just such a special event, such a special occasion. This is my third one. I've been around EBF for a while, so I've been to all the Prelude to Revivals. We do them every four years. And, uh, and I... I I even spent some time thinking this week, kind of trying to figure out why I love this event so much, because I couldn't quite pick, put my finger on it. Um, I, just, I just think it's awesome. I think it's just such a great thing. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I just thought about the fact that this is sort of, uh, this is us getting together morning and night, right, and, and worshiping the Lord and, and asking for revival. And, um, and I just... I just think like it's, it's that combination of us being together that makes it what it is. Because we, I hope, are as individuals pursuing the Lord during the week and we want to grow in our faith and stuff like that. But rarely do we spend so much time together in a week. And certainly rarely do we do that asking God for revival. Uh, it's just awesome. And, I, and then as I was thinking about that, the thought occurred to me that there's no way no way I can preach a sermon that's good enough to bring the revival that we want. And that's not, that's not I'm not pretending like I'm humble or anything, uh, but it's sort of coming to the terms of the, with the reality that, that it isn't a me thing. It's not a one-off sermon that's going to do it. It's, it's us doing things like repenting of sin and worshiping and praying and, you know, intensely and hearing the word and being together while we do all of those things. Those are the things that I think give us the best shot of seeing revival happen. And so it's, it's just, it's not a me thing. It's not a you thing. It's an us thing. That's why I think, I just think this is such a great occasion. Uh, and I, I miss it the other three years we're not doing it. Um, but I, I think that's, that's also good. But, um, but yeah, anyways, um, as, uh, as was said, I, uh, my name is Job. I'm the Director for Youth Ministries here at EBF. We have an awesome group of students. Um, and they too, if, if you've noticed, have been showing up morning and night for the sessions and, and doing a great job. I've loved seeing their presence um, a part of this stuff. It's been, it's been awesome. Um, they have not been parting from the uh, occasion. Students, if you understand what I'm saying, almost like I'm speaking in code when I say that word parting. Don't. If you're not a student, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's fine. Um, but, um, but yeah, I just, I'm really proud of that, of seeing our students here being a part of this, because they are indeed a part of our church. And if we want to see a revival, you better believe they're going to be involved in that. Um, so yeah, uh, and, uh, and I, I work as a missionary also. I get to travel. I get to um, lead students on mission trips, and, um, and I, I love all that too. Um, I, uh, okay, so about... Eight years ago, my mom passed away from cancer, and uh, and so and I was really close with my mom. So this was a that was a, a you know monumental event in my life, uh, letting her go and and seeing that happen. But she had battled cancer for like ten years before that, so it was kind of the thing that we knew was coming, and we were well prepared for. And uh, and the thing is, she was a really incredible lady. She was a really remarkable person as she battled through this cancer. 
Um, and it was a particularly vicious kind of cancer. So the fact that they, she lasted for 10 years fighting this was a, like a medical miracle. She was featured in Mayo Magazine, and she had been on all of these trials, and doctors were just kind of mystified by how she kept plugging away. And in the process, she was very vocal about her faith and, and spoke out a lot about the presence of Christ in her life and, and what that meant and how that helped her through cancer. Um, and so it was really, I mean, she was really amazing. She had a really broad ministry and affected a lot of people. So much so that people, because she lived in, we grew up, we were in Rochester, Minnesota, where Mayo Clinic is. And so, so sometimes other people would come into town for treatment. And the doctors, knowing my mom, would sometimes say, oh, you're dealing with this terrible cancer and you don't know what to do. Let me introduce you to this other patient, Peggy, who seems to have a really good handle on how to walk through this stuff. And so she touched a lot of people's lives that way. So what happened, when she passed away, we had a wake, and we knew it was going to be a lot of people, like the wake and the funeral. Um, so, I mean, and a lot of people showed up, so many people, and a lot of people that I didn't even know. Like, some people I knew a little bit, some people I knew really well, and, and some were just strangers. Um, but during the whole thing, I, I, people would show up one by one as we're sitting there at the wake, and I'm like, I'm processing, I'm trying to, like, just figure out how to deal with all this. And, uh, and these people would walk in the door, and they would come find me, because I was Peggy's son, and they would just hug me, and they would be crying, and they'd be a mess, and they'd just be like just hysterical because they're so sad, and they'd be like all the tears and, and the snot and the and all the like just all over me, and I'm and I'd be sitting there just like they're there, they're there, it's gonna be it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay, we're gonna get through this, just like and I and I remember thinking this is weird, this is awkward. Why am I comforting you? I'm my mom. It's my mom that died. Why am I comforting you right now? But that, it happens sometimes. We find ourselves in those situations where there's a bit of a role reversal where we're the person who should be, we would think be, need the comfort, uh, and then we find ourselves having to comfort the other people around us. And, and for whatever reason, it's just a strange phenomenon, a strange thing to experience. So I, I tell you that story because as we dive into this passage, I want to I paint the picture of the scenario that we're in with Jesus. That in the verses before, in the chapters before, starting at like in, uh, especially looking at chapter 12, verse 27, it says, now, this is Jesus talking, now is my soul troubled. Sorry, I'm in John, by the way. John, and I'm, I'm just quoting the verse, John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And so we're walking through, as we see Jesus' progression, one of the things that Jesus shows us is that he is dreading what's about to happen to him. And we saw in Gethsemane too, when he collapsed and was sweating and the drops, you know, drops like blood and stuff. Like Jesus was, was just, was stressed out about the impending torture and death that he was about to experience. He didn't want it. He knew what was going to happen, and he, he embraced it, and he went through with it. But he, we see, and Jesus let us see him praying, God, I don't want this. I don't like this. He was troubled. That's the word they used. He was troubled. And, uh, and so here we find ourselves, chapter 14, verse 1. We're in a private meeting with Jesus and his disciples. And he's walking through, these are his parting words. He's walking through his last statements with them because what happens in the next event? Jesus gets arrested and gets crucified. And here are his words to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is the one who's supposed to be troubled. 
He's the one who's facing death. He's the one who's about to be tortured and killed. And he's been vocal about the fact that he's troubled. And so that's our context. Jesus is troubled, and his words to the disciples are, it's going to be okay. Let not your words be troubled. So and I, I want to just emphasize that, because when we get to this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that's what our message is about today, that I, I have fallen in the habit of picturing these words, like Jesus yelling at them from a hillside, like Sermon on the Mount, in front of a thousand people, teaching them instructions. But that's not really what's happening. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, these are meant to be words of comfort, of co- consolation to his disciples who are stressed and worried because they are finally coming to terms with what's about to happen to Jesus. They're finally figuring out what Jesus has been saying all along. He's about to die on the cross. And they're worried about what's going to happen. Okay, so let's read. John 14, I'm going to start again in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If, I were not so, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way, the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The mood is somber. The stress is high. Jesus is troubled and his disciples are grasping for answers. They're confused and they're worried. And their worry is we would like to think for Jesus and what's about to happen to him. But nope, it's about themselves. They're asking the question, really, what's going to happen to us when you're gone? Where are we going to go? How do we find you? What's going to happen to us, Jesus? And so Jesus is offering these words, these, these words that we're going to study tonight, as words of consolement, of, of words of, of encouragement, and, and words of, of help. And when he offers these words, these words, they come as a promise. One big promise that I'm going to point out today, and that promise is comprised of three smaller but still big promises. All right? The promise is this. Jesus' promise to you and his promise to the disciples is I will always be everything you need. I will always be everything you need. And that's broken up into our three promises that we're going to study I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Those are promises. So let's go through them one at a time, but you guys are really quiet. So you have to participate now. Okay? So we have three points. And the first one is this. Jesus is the way to God. So when I say Jesus is the way, you're going to say, to God. Got it? Jesus is the way? To God. Jesus is the way? To God. Good. We're going to keep doing that for each point, all right? Jesus is the way to God. As was mentioned, I get to lead mission trips, and we spend most of our summers, Bethany and I, leading mission trips to Nepal. It's an awesome place, 
And one of my favorite places that we go and we take students to is this Tibetan refugee settlement out, outside, like kind of in central Nepal near the city of Pokhara. Um, and so we go and visit this, this Tibetan refugee settlement and we kind of, we do two things. We have conversations with the, the, the Tibetan Buddhists there. We talk about things like faith and culture and, and spirituality and we learn about what they're doing. We talk about what we're doing and stuff like that. Um, and we go and we tour the place and we, we see it's a monastery, it's a Buddhist monastery, so we see Buddhist monks doing chants and stuff like that and it's, it's a really wild experience. And, uh, and I know, I, I have an idea of what you picture when you think a Tibetan Buddhist. And, uh, and so when we go there, and, and there's some truth to that, like they're, they're Tibetans and they look like Tibetans and stuff like that. And, um, and it's just like, and, you know, and they're, they're Buddhists, so they, a lot of times they're walking around with their, their beads, they do their rituals, they do their chants and their mantras and stuff like that. Um, and they're very kind, warm people for the most part. But you would expect it, but the Tibetan Buddhists, they're crafty. They're crafty people. They're, they're kind of, they're sly. Way more than you, and they don't act like it, so you don't really realize it until, like, you start having a conversation or until they're trying to sell you something. They're the best salespeople ever. I have a necklace on right now. I know I paid five times as much as I should have with it because they treat you. They're so tricky. And so it's like, by the time I'm done with the conversation, it's like, here's my wallet. Just choose how much money you want. I don't care. Like, they're just, it, it just surprises you. And so, like, and they're, they're smart, and they're, they're just, they know how to navigate a conversation. They don't want to challenge you, and they're just, they're interesting to interact with. But at the same time, they're not harsh. They're wonderful. I love them. They're amazing people. And, uh, and to have conversations about spirituality are totally different with them than with anybody else. Uh, but it's always interesting, too, because we'll be having a conversation, like, and they'll, like, we can talk about the weather and, you know, make small chat and stuff like that. But if you bring up Jesus, uh, they'll do one of two things. One thing they might do is they might all of a sudden forget how to speak English. Like, every, like all the time. And they, they just, all of a sudden, they just go blank. And they just pretend like they don't know English anymore. And they don't understand what you're saying. And who, what, yeah, what mumbo-jumbo you're talking about. Um, and so, or the other option that they'll do is they'll start challenging you back. Because they know they've heard about Jesus before. And they already know what they think. And, uh, and so they'll push back. And so if, if they pretend like they don't know English, that's because they're letting you off easy. If you, have the, if you go into the conversation, they're going to push back and they're going to ask you really difficult questions like, how dare you say that my way is wrong and your way is right? I'm not even saying that. If you want to worship Jesus, that could be a way to God. But why would you say my way is wrong when I'm not saying that about you? How do you answer that question? It's such a a complicated thing to talk about. It's such a complicated thing to address. It's true, but how do we have that conversation and how do we like engage that without turning it into a debate? And so it's really easy to get ourselves trapped in a conversation. Um, and I think this is true in our life too, even, even as people we know, like in, in our own um, world, like that, that it's easy to get trapped in a conversation about who's right and who's wrong when it comes to spiritual things. Um, and I think what happens when we fall into the rut of trying to prove our case against theirs, we are already off message. Because what this passage is communicating is not just that you are excluded from heaven if you don't believe in Jesus. That's true. It just is. But much more than that, this statement communicates the incredible promise 
A promise that extends to absolutely everyone that Jesus has made a way for you when there was no way. That Jesus has made a way to God. Jesus is the way to God. And without Jesus, it's not that there's another way. There just wasn't going to be a way. Heaven is not about detachment from earth. It's not about basking in the luxury of the afterlife, the golden streets and the, the mansions and the um, not working and just relaxing. That's not what we're supposed to look forward to in heaven. Heaven is supposed to be about being with God. It's about being close to him. It's about knowing God in a way that we were never going to be able to know him here on earth. That's what heaven is for us. And that's what Jesus gives us. So when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not talking about himself like he's a bouncer for heaven. and He's going to kick away everybody who didn't do it his way, his way or the highway, stuff like that. That's not how he's presenting this. He's presenting it like he sees himself as a gift. By giving himself to us, he is giving us everything and keeping nothing from us. Because he's giving us God. He's giving us access to everything that is good and leaving nothing out for us. There's not any extra perks that we're missing out on. There's no VIP room in heaven that we're going to be wishing we had made it into. The most VIP experience a person could ever have, a human being could ever experience, is to be with God and to be close to him. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's making you a promise that with him, that's exactly what you get. That with him, you get God. Jesus is the way to God. With him, you're in. By believing in him, you've made it. And he wants you to take comfort in that. So with that in mind, how exclusive is it really then? How exclusive is it to say that God, that Jesus has given himself as a gift to you so that you could have God, so that you could be with God, so that you could know God, and so that you could be known by God. So when he says, I am the way, what feels exclusive isn't exclusive at all. In fact, it includes everything. It is all-inclusive. It is all God that we get. You get God. So his disciples are wondering what they're going to do without Jesus, what they're going to do when he's gone, how will they get to him. Jesus' answer is, you're never going to be without me. You will never be forgotten or left out. Believe in me and I'm going to take you, take care of you. I'm going to bring you home to God. Jesus is the way. I look sharp, all right? I'm going to keep doing this. Jesus is the way. All right. Jesus is the way to God. The second point is this. Jesus is the truth about God. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Good. Okay, do you ever think about how much of your life is affected by sin? Like, I mean, if you think about it, right? Our health has been affected by sin. Our relationships 
are affected by sin. Our, you know, our jobs, our minds are affected by sin. Our reasoning, our decision-making, our perception. It's all affected by sin, right? Like, one way or another, everything about us is, has been affected, has been touched by sin. Which, and I, I mean, I don't know. I, could, I like to speculate on that. It's kind of one of those things I like to just wonder and ponder about. Like, like could I, if, if sin weren't in the picture, what could I do? Would I be a faster runner? And would pizza, like, can I just eat all the pizza I want and never get fat? That would be, like, that's the, that's the heaven for me. Yeah, I think, like, just, but it's a fun, that's funny. But, I, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thought to think about what would life be without sin? How much has sin affected everything? And the more you think about it, the more you're going to find things that have been, at least in some way, been tainted by sin. So, when Jesus presents himself as the truth, that statement should resonate with us when we think about sin. Because it's our quest to become holy. We want sanctification, don't we? We want out of this sin that wreaks havoc in our lives. We want out of this sin that affects our decisions and our perceptions. Um, we, want, we want freedom from sin. And the only way we'll have freedom from sin is in truth. And that fact that Jesus is the truth means that we now have a guide to navigate the circumstances of our lives. That Jesus is the truth, it means there is one thing. If everything is affected by sin, there's one thing that isn't in our lives, and that's Jesus. So as we navigate the circumstances of our lives, if we try to make decisions, as we try to grow and become more holy and become more faithful, the only way to do that is by knowing Jesus. So when he calls himself the truth, all right, all right, I'm proud. When he calls himself the truth, he... Uh, He's, he's teaching us about how he's going to help us, walk us through our lives, and help keep us from sin, help protect us, and give us a way out of sin. And that represents something very crucial to us. If it's truth we want, we need not look any farther than Jesus. Jesus is our truth. He is our constant. He is who we measure everything against because he has been unaffected, untainted by sin, and everything else has. As long as we pay attention to him, we will always have a guide. We will always have a source for knowing what's real and what's not, what's truth and what's false, what's good and what's bad. We will always know because we will always know Jesus. And so to do that, all we have to do is ask the question, what does the life of Jesus say about God? What truth does Jesus teach us about God? And some examples of that would be, Jesus is not motivated by human desires. He's not subject to the demands of, of man. Jesus is brave in the face of troubling circumstances. Jesus is emotional. He is tender-hearted towards his people. He grieves when we grieve. He celebrates when we celebrate. 
These are the things that when we observe about Jesus, they teach us how to live our own lives, how to live in truth and not in sin. Jesus is not weak. He is, he is motivated by the will of the Father. He is obedient to the will of the Father. Jesus is gracious, forgiving, and kind. Unless he caught you trying to use God's name for your own selfish ambitions, then he was anything but. He would do anything to make sure we could have salvation from condemnation, and he did. These are the things about Jesus that teach us how to live, how to live in truth and not in sin. Paul saw it too. In Philippians 4, 8, he said, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's just Paul literally talking about Jesus in that whole passage. He just named Eight different things, basically named Jesus eight different ways. Honorable, true, lovely, just. He wants us to see Jesus as our source of truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life from God. Last night I was really moved when Andy talked about, um, about uh, the resurrection and the life. And he drove home the idea that we were never meant to say goodbye. I had to think about that. I had to decide if that was true or if he was just Andy saying Andy things. And, uh, and I think it is. I agree. I think it's absolutely true. Because it's true because we are made in God's image. He is the eternal God. And he placed eternity in our hearts. Our longing is for the eternal. We were meant to live and to experience eternal life. And the thing that ruins all that, of course, is sin. And sin is what brings death. And death is why we have to say goodbye. Death is brutal. It's mean. It hurts deeper than almost any other pain we can experience. Death rips hope out of our hands. It forces us to say goodbye when we were never meant to. Death is the ultimate manifestation of, of sin in the human life. But, in Jesus, and this is exactly what he's trying to communicate to his disciples in this very visceral moment. Death, in Jesus, is defeated. It loses its stings. It's rendered powerless. Because we believe in Jesus, we receive the promise of eternal life. We know this. All of a sudden, when we put our faith in Christ, the physical death we still will experience changes completely. It becomes something more like just a departure home. A departure home where Jesus is there making a home for us, preparing the way for us. So you can imagine then when Thomas is scrambling to know what's going to happen and he asks Jesus, how can we know the way? The significance of Jesus' response, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is a promise to the disciples that even after his departure from earth, we, we will always have everything we need. Jesus will always be everything we need. That's a promise to us. 
Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus will always be everything you need. So we're going to go to a time of prayer. And I'm going to walk us through this. Because here's what I want to do when I ask you to, to bow your heads in prayer. I'm going to give you a promise that I believe is inferred in this passage. A promise from Jesus. And then I'm going to wait a, a moment to let you meditate on that promise. And then I'll move on to the next one. And then the next one. And the next one. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus is in heaven preparing for you, working on your behalf. You will not be forgotten or left behind. one day live with God in heaven. Jesus is going to bring you home. Your life is not defined by its problems. Truth is not impossible to grasp. It is given to you in Jesus. Never die. God will never turn you away. 
He is not out of your reach, and you are not out of his. are known by the living God. Your failure will not condemn you. It will not interfere with your salvation. Jesus understands your sorrow and your pain. always going to help you. You are loved by Jesus. Jesus is your way, your truth, your life. He will always be everything you need. 